Check out episode 21 and explore design to concept with George, the co-founder of Sully Wong. This is Two Babes Talk Supply Chain, where we interview the top supply chain professionals in the industry. You will learn about best practices, changes in the industry, and hot topics in supply chain. We answer all your questions and put sexy into supply chain. We are your hosts, Sarah and Nick. Welcome everyone, 2017 is in full swing and we are excited to not only kickstart 2017 with all of you, but also today's guest, Roger Gingerich. As a fashion broker, Roger works with celebrity clients managing their fashion-related opportunities, placing ghost designers with high-profile brands, networking incredible people to relatable positions, advising to the film industry on opportunities for the Canadian fashion community, and he is also on the advisory council of Toronto's Men's Fashion Week and Toronto Women's Fashion Week. He is a board member of Fashion Group International and co-chair of Humber College's Fashion, Arts, and Business Program Advisory Committee. Welcome, Roger. We are so excited to have you in studio with us today and talking about how retailers or brands are ensuring value in their global supply chain. Thank you for having me. As companies are assessing their 2017 plans, I'm sure they are looking at their supply chain and it's high on their list, so this interview is timely. All right, Roger, let's get started. So what is a global fashion broker? A global fashion broker can be defined in in many different ways, but for my business, uh, it's basically, there's no borders anymore in in the global fashion economy. And it's a matter of looking at opportunities both in Europe, both in Asia and in North America, and there's literally no borders. So it's a matter of of brokering that deal between designers, between brands, between uh, celebrities and opportunities um, across the pond or within our own continent as well. So it's basically brokering any kind of deal um, along the fashion community. So Roger, what is sustainable fashion? Yeah, that's a that's a loaded question. I was actually doing quite a bit of research when um, when you guys had asked me that question. It's um, you know that that word also goes along with eco fashion, and and it's um, it's a phrase I've I've had a problem with for quite a while because many like to jump on the bandwagon of that word, sustainable fashion or or eco friendly fashion when. Um, yeah, it's nothing's really sustainable anymore. It's we live in, you know, an, an economy about fast fashion, which you know I'm sure we'll touch base on. But um, fast fashion and sustainable fashion are not the same thing whatsoever. No, they're not. You know, sustainable fashion is what's good for our environment, what's good for um, our pocketbooks. I mean, it, it just covers so many different aspects. Sustainable fashion. Um, at the end, at the end of the day, it's, it's got to be sustainable. It's it's a matter of, you know, I have a, a jacket I bought at a flea market years ago. And And the label on the inside said, made in East Germany, which uh, automatically is is adding a few decades onto that garment. And it's a beautiful jacket. That jacket I'm going to have for the next 20, 30 years as well. That's sustainable. Uh, It's something that you're actually going to get it repaired. We don't repair things anymore. Mm -hmm. We're in such a throwaway society with with shoes, with socks, with pants, with jackets, with outerwear. Uh, That's not sustainable. Sustainable is, is something that... 
I'm not saying it's an investment. A home is an investment. That's sustainable. Um, and fashion will never be something that we're going to have forever. But there, there's got to be that balance in sustainability within a in an industry that you know there's a glut of apparel in the industry, and and it doesn't fit into that formula of sustainable fashion. Yeah, there's so much available these days. You know, you talk about fast fashion. I want to ask you, you know, with the pressure of fast fashion, fast fashion. Sorry. How can retailers work with their suppliers to create a better supply chain and not just pressure suppliers to bring down costs or increase payment terms? Because I think that's resulting in a lot of fast fashion. And, you know, the throwaway society, you know, there's so much available to us that we can go ahead and do that, although it's not very good for the environment, you know, but at the same time, it comes down to brands, it comes down to retailers putting that pressure on their suppliers and everybody just trying to get that cost down. Yeah, yeah it's it's such a, boy, that, um, that question alone is a, is a good hour. And the, it, you know, if anybody has, has felt the the pressure in, t- in today's industry with with fashion, it's definitely the supply chain where the consumers now control um, the, the call, so to speak. Where decades and decades, um, where the retailers and the designers called the shots, it's literally now the consumer calling those shots. Where you take um, Zara and H and M, famous for the the fast fashion model, um, and many others. So the the turnarounds um, from trend to the retail floor is unbelievable how it's it, it used to be 66 weeks was the magic time frame uh, for a designer wow. to go to market so that's over a year basically yeah. and it's literally being done within six to seven weeks right now the fast wow. fashion so you put the pressure on the supply chain management industries globally um, I had a celebrity client um, years ago sorry two years ago um, uh, he's a Canadian singer globally renowned I unfortunately I can't name names, um, wanted to do a hoodie collection. The problem with this specific um, artist is they were not sure how well this hoodie was going to take off. Um, was it 50 pieces going to be ordered from his predominantly female um, fan base globally? So once it, it went to market, is it going to be 50? Is it 500? Is it 50,000? The second you put that out into the market, you better be prepared for those orders coming in. And if it's 50,000, nobody's sitting on that kind of fabric uh, anymore in, in this in this economy where you, the the mills and whatever have you are just creating that type of fabric just waiting for that order to come along it's, it's just not happening so right. that pressure on the supply chain is is really what's in stock yeah. and from what's in stock um, how, how quickly can we get down to the market floor you take trend forecasting I used to teach uh, trend forecasting many many years ago where we were literally 18 months out on a, on a trend on a collar or on a lapels or what have you, a skirt lengths, whatever have you, yeah, that's long gone. That's where Burberry was the first in the industry to go straight to market. So their fashion shows that they would showcase, literally, it's ready to buy, it's ready to wear, literally ready to wear, it's in the stores, um, where that is just throwing the entire fashion community uh, upside down because it's no longer you know, showcasing spring, summer, in fall winter and the fall winter for spring summer following years it's so many are actually showing in season right now just because of of that turn where the consumer is 
is he's there dictating the trends and they want to see those trends live right now. They're not waiting for somebody else to tell them what the trend's going to be in 12 months to 18 months. Now, now do, do you think that, do you has, think to that has to do with kind of the internet and everything? Absolutely. Everyone wants that thing right now where before they had to wait. Like there was no way to go online and say, oh, I want this hoodie that's coming next year for, for whatever season. It's like, no, I, if I want it, I want it now. I'm going to pay for it. I want it out my door next week. Yeah, you take it's, it's absolutely 100%. It's um, that impulse buy and it, it's it's time is we're in a society now where they, t they talk about the eight second rule where you're watching television. If it hasn't captured or kept your attention for eight seconds, you're channel flicking them. Eight seconds. Fashion is no different where you know you can get, a, get it right away and you, you don't want to wait 12 months for something that you've seen on a runway or six months that you've seen. You want it now, and if they don't have it, you're going to find another website with somebody that's got a very similar um, piece in stock that you can wear tomorrow, and you're paying an extra twelve ninety five, and and you're having it shipped to your door tomorrow. And but I, then I you're also the first with it, so then you got bragging rights. <laughs> <laughs> but then at what cost, right? What cost are we looking at here? You know, how is that quality? Yeah, um, yeah you know, and it. it I'll, I'll backtrack that. So you you take uh, a retailer like Harry Rosen's, and Harry um, personally has said over the last 60-something years, I do not follow trends. I follow classic, simple pieces that you take, the, especially for men, because we're very much a simple breed. That white dress shirt is never going out of style. Um, so menswear is a lot easier to get away with that when you're not following trends. Um, and if you're a retailer or a designer or, or a collection that's not really focusing on trends, that's really where you might be you might be deemed boring or it's very simple pieces but they're classic pieces that in a way is is you know just come back to the sustainable fashion but the trends right now are on that 495 dress um, or blouse or whatever have you that literally 50 percent of the quality is gone after one washing but the consumers don't care because it only costs them 495 yeah. whatever have you so they're, they're not really caring about caring about the um the landfill um or the use of that garment as well so um you know, just to bring it back again to, you know, the the original question on the, the fast fashion, on the demands on everybody, everybody's feeling it. You know, from the suppliers, from the um, the supply chain, that you, you can't just wait on your zippers, you can't wait on your threads, you can't wait on your fabric. It can't be held up in customs. Like, the demands to market are second to none right now within the fashion community. Yeah, and that's, you know, that was part of the question, you know, they're... The retailers or the brands are putting more and more pressure on the suppliers. And how much pressure can you really put on them? I mean, your longer payment terms. How long is that, sh that supplier going to be in business because you haven't paid those, you haven't paid him so that he can pay his bills. Yep. And then you tap onto that, the uh, the major retailers that actually go consignment, and they're not only consignment on that uh, delivery, if it doesn't sell, they're charging you 25% restocking, where the retailers are not taking the risks anymore. Right. Um, the brands and uh, the designers are, are taking that risk and that, that delay in payment terms as well. But how long can we keep putting the pressure on and on and on to be able to sustain the fast fashion? I mean, it's not good to the environment. You know, it's good for consumers. It's it's well, good for... Well, uh, again, I don't even know if it's sustaining because then you got, like, the, the companies like Walmart or, or Zeller's, Sears, that are going to copycat whatever these other companies are, are bringing out for fashion. 
And then they're going to undercut them because they're not using the same quality material, China labor, all that other issues. Mm -hmm. No, 100%. You take um, what's going on right now with American Apparel and Nasty Girl in the U.S. where these were brands that became billion-dollar brands within a course of a number of years. uh, But it wasn't sustainable because that model and because the consumer is so fickle, they don't care if you're a billion-dollar brand. If if the wind has changed northwest from southeast, Mm -hmm. that's where the consumer is going and if you're not agile as a brand or as a retailer to, to turn with that wind you're done we're seeing it in the industry non-stop so you take a, a retailer like a Harry Rosens or, or others that don't necessarily follow um, that fast fashion model they you know they may not be the latest designs or the latest trends but they're following core you take the luxury industry they don't follow fast fashion. Right. You take the Dior's and the the Gucci's or the uh, Hermes and um, the Fendi. I could go on and on. They don't follow those types of trends, and they will be in business another hundred years from now as well because of the fact they are following a sustainable model. Right. Right. Okay. Well, I'm going to take it into a little bit of a different direction. Um, how are brands changing their philosophies? Um, around the human impact of their supply chain. You know, for example, the tragedy in Bangladesh, um, the conditions that the, you know, the manufacturing plants, the people in the manufacturing plants they're working in, things like that. I mean, are, are they changing philosophies? Did that, you know, make a big impact? I mean, we're sort of taking it back to the sustainability part of fashion rather than the fast fashion. But what are brands and, and retailers doing to make sure that that doesn't happen again? Yeah, actually, I, I, I personally don't believe they are. You know, I call it the Rob Ford effect. They're only going admit to it, admit it when they're caught and there's proof in front of their face. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's unfortunate, but I've seen it time and time again with brands um, that are playing dumb. They're playing, I didn't know. Um, you take where the, the, the industry is, is passing on to so many other suppliers or I've outsourced it to so-and-so. I, I said in an interview with CBC a number of years ago during that Bangladesh tragedy, unless you actually have a company employee living and breathing on that factory floor, um, knowing where the, the threads are coming from, where the buttons are coming from, where the hang tags are coming from, where the labels are coming from, uh, from all aspects, is 100% of that production being done on that floor? Is it being outsourced? Is it being done with home sewers? Um, but it's, it's an expense to that. You know, and fashion is a very low margin industry. It's not an industry where they can afford those those extra expenses. So no, I actually don't believe they are making the changes. They're making the changes when they get caught and, mm-hmm. and they're admitting to it and, and promising to never do it again. And, and it's just a, a number of years later, it's, it's just back to old habits. I see, and it will never, ever go away. Um, and it's not necessarily about being overseas. The city of Toronto was busted many years ago, um, caught in a, in a sweatshop uh, situation where it was a unionized factory. It was legal garments, uh, but half of the garments were made by um, home sewers upon uh, research. And the home sewers were um, not legal workers within the country really? and making less than $4 an hour sewing city-owned garments. So it doesn't matter where you are. Does, doesn't matter. Well, and I think consumers are getting a little bit um, smarter. They're doing a lot more research sometimes with the brands. And that's why, you know, we were talking to George, um, George Sully, about their production and their manufacturing overseas. And it is a family. Um, so they have the luxury of, of knowing who's doing what and who they're employing and, and different things like that. I think it makes a huge difference. And that's where I think you're going to see the smaller brands you know, being able to compete because they care about those things and they're making, you know, 
uh, time for that. They're making it a, a priority. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, and it's a great example of of George Sully with uh, the Sully Wong collection, where his partner, um, actually, you're right, is involved with the factory overseas. So it's their reputation on the line. I've actually seen way more reputable factories overseas than I have seen in North America. Uh, it's their livelihood. It's they live and breathe the uh, the fashion, the apparel industry. Um, so they've got a lot more to lose than we do here in North America. Mm-hmm. What are the brands that are getting sustainable fashion right? How is this affecting their supply chain? Yeah, there, there's a few out there. You know, I, I, I'd be remiss to really highlight one or two. Um, there's a documentary called, um, I, I believe it's called The Real Truth. And it was a documentary done on uh, sustainable fashion and the waste and, and certain brands out there, you know, using leftover waste from factories or... Um, or finding something where it was not the dyes that they're being used. You, you take 16% of worldwide pesticides are being used just for cotton production. Really? 16% of all worldwide pesticides just for cotton production as well. Um, so brands that are doing it right, I've, I've yet personally to see a brand that is 100% doing it right. Um, number one, it's it will never grow. Uh, it, it'll just be such a small market, a niche market where, you know, we're pulling at the heartstrings. You know, it's happening in the food industry right now where people are actually seeing the effects of their own health um, by buying organic to non-organic, whatever have you. And that's slowly coming around within, within the food industry. Um, fashion is a little bit different because of the fact that... Um, we are still price conscious. We've got $100 in our wallet. We want that $100 to go as far as possible. And unless you're pulling out my heartstrings or it's something that I truly believe in, um, unfortunately, this society globally, and I'm not talking, you know, Europe or Asia or North America, globally, and unfortunately, it's it's not pulling out our heartstrings enough. It is the second um, most second employer of people in the world next, next to the agriculture industry as well. Wow. So people understand there's there's so many people employed in all aspects of the, of the fashion industry. Um, you know, so brands that are doing it right, it's great. It's a great story. It's great PR, but it's expensive. And at the end of the day, you know, our dollar is, is, is worth so much. And if I'm going to walk out, so I'll take a thousand dollars. So if I'm walking out with 10 absolutely stunning pieces, or I'm walking out with 75 really cool pieces, what am I going to go with? And yeah. unfortunately, it's, it's just a reality of the fashion community right now. So maybe then I think where we're getting at with this really is that quality would sort of win out over sustainability. Um, 100%, 100%. Yeah, because, you know, sustainability pulls at the heartstrings and things like that. But quality, people can see, people can touch, people can feel. Um, and so that will win out over fast fashion then. 100%. Yeah, if I, I have no problem buying a, a quality garment that was three times the value, but it's it's a classic piece. I'm going to have it five, six years from now. That has paid itself over 10 times yeah. over. And, and you get what fashion. you pay for. Like That's like anything. You buy a $15,000 car, well, it's probably going to break down in three years. You buy a $50,000 car, well, you should be pretty good for six, seven years. Yep, 100%. I, I call it the toaster model. You know, you have discounters that have that toaster for $9.95, and you've got somebody on a very fixed income, and, and they've got $100 for that month for shopping, and they their toaster is broken down, and, and they can buy a toaster for $9.95, um, or they can buy one for $99.95. 
um, they're going to go for the $9.95. The reality is that toaster was made with B-grade wires. Um, the, the plastic coating, that wire, takes any slight little bit of a bend. It's cracked. Um, the elements are made of B-grade um, elements as well. It's not made to last more than a year. A year later, that same person with that $100 of disposable income is back buying that same toaster. Um, so after 10 years, they've gone through 10 toasters. Right. Meanwhile, a quality toaster could have lasted them 20, 30 years. Um, fashion is very similar, you know, from, from that standpoint, um, where you do buy a good quality cotton piece that, yes, went through a lot of pesticides, um, wasted a lot of water in the production, but I've got that garment, I've got that piece, you know, for the next 10, 15 years, what have you. So then when you look at a quality piece and then you look at fast fashion, um, when it comes to supply chain, what are the differences? I mean, fast fashion is getting on the floor you know, super quickly. And what are those strains? Like, you know, the supply chain, how do they, they've got to get it there fast. And then quality, they have time on their side. They're able to do things a little bit differently. So what are those differences? Yeah, I'm not saying the fast fashion industry doesn't have their supply chain um, down pat. They'd have to, to actually go to market properly. But one thing with the, with the quality industry where they're literally starting 18 months old, you know, the 66-week uh, formula that I was talking to you about, um, you know, they've done their homework on the trends, on the fabrics. They've had the fabric uh, uh, created. Um, they know what their patterns are going to be. They've got the time. They're working the best uh, price practices. They know in, in advance um, the pricing on their freight or on their containers, whatever have you, where fast fashion, because it's such a turn, they're not shipping those garments by sea. They're coming in by air. Right. Um, so they're looking at every kind of cost-saving model uh, possible just to hit their keystone at retail. Uh, I remember years ago, a um, uh, corporate client needed 33,000 garments. We brought them in from Surabaya, Indonesia, and the factory had produced them in time. We spent over $100,000 on airfare. We would have been cheaper actually hiring our own plane uh, to Indonesia and bringing them back. We were bumped three times for shipments um, for flowers out of New Zealand, uh, meat, and uh, another flower shipment. And they were considered perishables. And clothing can wait. Perishables are on that plane. We were, we were bringing them in, like literally overnight air, um, but we got bumped continually because of that. Um, so I, I, I think of fast fashion like perishables. It's very much, it's dated, it's, it's, it's time. It, it's got to land here to be on that floor um, where it's literally weeks and not a season on, on a retail floor. Um, so quality very much works onto that favor because they've, they've got their, their best cost practices down pat. There's no hiccups. There's no, there's no surprises along the way. Yeah. And I mean, they, they're not the ones that are going to put the pressure on the suppliers, right? Exactly. I mean, they may at some point because there's got to be a little bit of give, you know, especially in business, but it's not like they're consistently going back to their suppliers and saying, Hey, you know, we need longer payment terms. Um, you need to make sure your people are working faster, you know, producing more garments an hour than they were yesterday, sure. you know, and air freight, is not cheap, you know, in fast fashion, and y you've been bumped two or three times, that could be in the course of two or three days, yep, especially absolutely. out of location like Indonesia. I mean, and then the garment could almost be like yesterday's, right? Yep. So I think there's, you know, I think there's some advantages and disadvantages to both. 
Um, although the quality and people getting to be so much more familiar with the quality and liking quality and spending the money for quality because they know they're going to they're going to keep that garment for twenty or thirty years. Yeah, I'll, I'll take this back uh, a number of years. Um, the industry goes a lot, but a segment of the industry uh, called back to school or BTS, where it was a little over a decade ago, where the back to school model was mommy and daddy were controlling. You know that I'll, I'll pick a number five hundred dollars. Uh, little Billy and little Sally are going back to school and they're getting their outfits for the year for the next 10 months and mom and dad would do that shopping. Along came the designers and you know they're out with uh, Nickelodeon and MTV and, and they're hitting their demographic and little Billy and Sally are now um, nagging mom and dad going, I want to spend that $500 on what I like, on the brands I want. Well, those brands were not made to last for the next two, three, four years um, or, or growth spurts or whatever have you. Um, and what had happened was little Billy and Sally were buying garments. Um, the quality wasn't there. It was very much um, in trend, in season. And by December, those clothes were worn out. Um, they were not wearing them anymore because they weren't considered cool on the playground anymore. And in January, they're hitting mom and dad up for another $500 for back to school for the for the balance of the year. Um, the pro for the fashion community, it doubled uh, the industry. Right. The back to school industry doubled because of that. Um, so there was a lot of um, a lot of uh, positives for it. It, um, it changed the way advertisers then went. They weren't targeting mom and dad anymore. They were targeting Billy and Sally because now they're holding on to the purse springs, purse strings. Um, and it was a double buy a year for the back to school industry. And that changes the transportation model considerably, right? Because I know with, you know, uh, with retailers or brands, there's certain times of year that they're busier than others because they're bringing in, you know, product for Christmas or they're bringing it in for back to school. And uh, if they're looking at two back to school, um, then that sort of changes that model all over. Yeah, 100%. And, and the, the problem with that one is you take, you know, that January model. So the kids are obviously, you know, looking forward to gifts over the holidays, whatever have you. Um, but you take the supply chain is already just concentrating on, you know, the holiday season and getting product in the holiday season, not little Billy and Sally's, you know, fashion um, whims for, for January, February and on for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So where do you see global fashion in the next five to 10 years and what are the challenges? Man, I'd be a very wealthy man if I could <laughs> exactly where that was going. Um, unfortunately, I, I, and I'll say I don't see it getting any better and I, and I don't mean that as a negative, uh, but there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure on everybody along, along the chain, um, on delivery model, on, on getting it faster. We can only get get it so fast. Planes can only go so fast. Well, I don't um, know about that. Amazon's getting their own planes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that alone, <laughs> you know, it, it, will we be delivering by drones? Um, who we knows? Yeah, yeah, I love that. my drones. <laughs> and and you, you take um, the the local footprint, you know, on, on making Canadian made or, you know, if I'm in Europe, it's, it's literally made in Europe. So right off the bat, we've we've gotten rid of the transportation model right off of the bat. Um, we don't produce textiles in Canada. So so we're always going to have that problem on on um, the textile end of, end of it. Um, where do I see it going? Wow. You know, I. I I, I'm going to go on record for this one, but um, I actually see it going back. I see a, a bit of a pushback. I, I'm seeing it already in technology, um, and I'm, 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 I have a feeling it's going to happen in fashion where we're actually 
going to take a step back and realize, wow, do I really need these 50 garments? You take the 80-20 rule in fashion where 80% of your closet, you wear 20% of your closet 80% of the time. Um, so people are looking at their closet, um, realizing, do I really need all these other pieces within my my closet? You know, I'm, I'm trying to lose a bit of weight myself. And I'm, I'll get I'm back holding, there. I'll get back there. Give me a couple more weeks. That's exactly <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, we're holding on to some pieces, and, and it's now it's not a couple weeks. It's a few years. I'll admit it. I've got some pieces in my closet from 10 years ago. I love these pieces. I need to throw them away and move on. Um, <laughs> where I, I do see that um, that coming back into fashion where we're going to have actually less pieces rather than more. And the, and the model of, of fast fashion is wear it while it's in season and throw it away because yeah. it didn't cost you anything. It was a meal out um, at the restaurant, for crying out loud, is, is basically a fast fashion um, a collection, whatever have you. But I, I do see a pushback, and I do see us um, having more um, simple basic models it's happening in japan in japan there's a number of of retail outlets it's literally no labels and they are basic pieces um where you spend the money are in the scarves or the little pieces where you can accessorize um but you're wearing good quality basic pieces as well um so that, in a way I, I see the fashion industry kind of coming back because that fast fashion model cannot keep going on the on the path it is there's there's just it's not good for the environment um, at one point prices are going to start going up um, as it's eroded in in certain countries and Canada has been trying to bring it back but but you take you know key markets like China and, and Bangladesh um, from a textile end of it you know, there's going to be a pushback at one point where the prices are going to start going up um, yeah. well we've kind of we've also trained the consumer to buy on sale so how do we get out of that? Well, that's uh, that's a loaded question. It's um, and it's a, it's a great one. It, it annoys me to no end that the second something hits a retail floor, it's it's on sale. Um, it's it's yeah. Well, where where do I start with that one? It's. Um, because of the retailers saw such a drive in traffic every time they have a sale that the sale price is literally turned into be the true keystone price where they've actually gotten into a, a habit of a, of a four or five time multiplier um, it's hidden in the back room somewhere so that legally it was because due to the um, uh, the Retail Act, it, it has to be at, a, at its true price before it can be on sale. But meanwhile, it's hidden in the houseware selection somewhere. So you've never seen that jacket or that garment on full price. And then all of a sudden, it's on sale, which is true Keystone. And the retailer is still making the money. But the, but the the consumer is, is you're right, has got this model. I'm only buying something if it's on sale. Um, and there's a number of retailers refused actually to have sales. Is this is our price? It's a fair price. It's our it's our first and only price. Um, and at one point, then it moves on. I do a bit of work with um, luxury retailers where uh, I'll get a phone call. Roger, we have a hundred leftover bags uh, in Canada. Uh, they were retailing for twenty four hundred. They are not going on sale. Help us make them disappear. Um, so th through various corporate channels and whatever have you, um, I can move them. And that retailer is able to move his in inventory um, without having a, a sale or um, a diminishing of a brand in the marketplace. Right. So, but how are they going to, like, is it ever going to stop? Have we sort of turned the market into... Yeah, sales have been, honestly, around for decades and decades. Mm -hmm. I have a... Um, um, Oh, it's an old um, 1905 Simpson Sears um, 
catalog. Oh, wow. Very, very heavy in fur. It's beautiful. It was the size of a phone book at the time. You know it's old once when you say Simpsons. Serious. <laughs> I'm dating myself on that one. Um, but a few of them, you know, the inserts that they had were, um, you know, on sale, um, you know, whatever have you. They've been around forever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was key key components to on sales where you're on the later half of a, of a season, um, something's on sale. The, the problem with Canada is because we have four full seasons, you take last year, we didn't have winter. It was disastrous for the winter outerwear industry in Canada. Right. We are trained. We I call it the Canadian Tire um, um, snow shovel theory. We're not buying a snow shovel until that first snow falls out. That first snowfall, just go to Canadian Tire. Guaranteed, it's at the back of the stores where the snow shovels are. So make sure you're walking through every aisle possible to get to that snow shovel. And and it's brilliant. Um, outerwear is the same way. You know, we're not buying that six, seven, eight hundred dollar um, staple piece until we know we've got a good five, six months of winter ahead of us. And last year, I, if I'm not, if memory serves me correct, I think the first real snowfall came in late. February. Yeah, yeah. it was close to March. Yeah, it was done. And then it was, and, and it, was it was cold, for, yeah. like really cold yeah. for a month because I walked the dogs. So we, I had, we had more snow, I think, in two weeks of March than we did of all of the winter. It's crazy. Yeah. But you're not buying a six, seven hundred dollar garment. You're thinking no. another no. month. I'm, I'm into ball. Well, I got my spring attire already going on. Play. I do like my Canada goose though. But, but, but that's a staple piece, so we're, we're bringing it back to quality. So that's yeah. something you're not buying every year. No. But for those looking for that piece, um, in Canada, it, it, affects, um, it affects the fashion industry. If we have four good, true seasons, everybody wins along the way. Um, I think it was Weather Gear in the U.S., uh, I think it was 15 years ago. They actually have outerwear insurance. So retailers can actually buy insurance depending on the weather. So if there's no weather, uh, sorry, if there's no weather, if um, if the winter um, has not hit a certain days below a specific temperature, uh, they have an insurance policy to cover all of those winter jackets going back. And, and going back to the price of um, apparels and stuff, I don't think that's really going to change that much in Canada just because the duty rate of bringing any apparel into Canada is extremely high. Yeah, and I think in some respects in the states it can it, be as it, high. It's, it it's even really higher, high. actually. In some of the some of the item, items, HS codes are higher in the states than what they are in Canada. But fifteen to seventeen percent is normally the going rate for apparels. That's yeah. a pretty high number to put on something that you're buying three hundred items for, let's say three hundred dollars, and then next thing you know, you got eighteen percent plus your shipping, plus your marketing, everything else that you'd have to add onto that. Yeah, that's a good point. I was actually talking to somebody about dresses. Um, They let people try on the dresses. So they send the dress out, you try it on, and you return it, and it costs about $10. And then you go and buy the real dress, and the real dress is at a cost. Well, I know some people that would go and try that dress out, use it for a night, take it back, saying, oh, that's not what I wanted. (laughs) Well, I didn't get into that with him. But at the end of the day, I mean, it's it's a great model. But like he was saying, he was paying 16% duty into the U.S. And I said, well, coming to Canada, you're looking at... Spending 18%. Yeah, 15 to 18%, yeah. You know, so that does make a big difference. But, I mean, when you're talking about fast fashion, not really the quality, the price is, you know, it's down there and you can afford that 18% because you're churning. Sure, and and you take the duty rates and the HS codes alone. um, One of the reasons we actually do still have a strong outerwear manufacturing in here, you take T-shirts, it's it's too inexpensive. The volumes of T-shirts, from a promotional standpoint, the white T-shirt and the black uh, polo, 
uh, are the number one and two in the globally as far as a promotional trade of volume. It's a, it's a marathon, whatever have you. It's a dated event. They're going to use a, a taller $2 t-shirt, um, which is why it's it's so inexpensive to have them done offshore. But you get into outerwear garments, you know, it, it makes a lot more sense having them made in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got a lot of um, the, the natural properties are here from, you know, the goose down or feather, whatever have you. Um, but just on the point you were talking about the dress, um, I'm not sure if now's the time to talk about it, but, you know, we're such a shared economy right now. There's a big buzzword on um, Airbnb and Lyft yeah. and, and Uber and whatever have you. You know, is that shared economy going to come to fashion? You know, especially with women that cannot be seen ever wearing that same dress twice. Sarah. Um, I'm, I'm, hi, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> where, where men, um, you know, we can wear that same suit, you know, two or three, four or five times in a row. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to have You a might have to get it altered, but we could still wear it. Yeah, but, but on that point, you know, men, you know, we wear our weight our weight in the stomach, you know, not so much um, in the chest when we lose or gain. So it's a lot easier for men. You know, I'm a 42 jacket, uh, 42 to a 44. uh, And normally there's a bit of room. So from a shared economy, um, from a suit standpoint, and, and more so from a blazer, you know, there's opportunities out there. There's many in the dress community um, that, um, I mean, I'm trying to think of them offhand, but um, they rent dresses, obviously, for balls and gowns. And yep. we're talking $1,000 dresses, you know, so to rent them for an evening for 50 to 100 to $200 is, is quite valuable to somebody uh, because their, their, their wardrobe is constantly changing. Rent, so frock, sh- repeat. I'm sorry? Rent, frock, Thank repeat. You. That, and yeah. they've been around for years. Yeah, they, they've uh, they've put together a really great model. They and do shoes as well? I'm not entirely sure, but uh, I wouldn't put it past them. Yeah, especially the shoes can be just as much as a dress sometimes. But but talking about that shared economy, you know, and talking the, you know where the global fashion industry is going, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some sort of that shared value coming uh, Mm -hmm. to fashion. Yeah, and it's just a great idea. I mean, if we're going to start buying garments online, right? Like, we don't know where the bricks and mortar stores are going. Um, You know, are they turning into experience stores? Are they reducing in numbers and then they're going to be an experience store where people can go in, try on garments, and then maybe buy it online? This is just a different version of that model because they're actually sending you the garment to try on, you're returning it, and then you make the purchase. So, I mean, you got to kind of think outside of the box. You know, there's not as many stores. You, but you take the bricks and mortar. I, I don't believe they're ever, ever, ever going to go away. Mm-hmm. Um, but online is, is only growing. So it's that experiential. You you take the shopping malls um, that are actually fighting to get you into their malls or, or onto Bloor or onto Queen West. Um, Hudson Bay, you know, paying a fortune to get Mariah Carey. Um, they didn't pay that money to have Mariah Carey come out so that people can go online. No, they brought people so that you could come into our store Right. And do, you're you're far easier to do an impulse buy when you're in a mall or you're in a store rather than being online. You've touched it. You've fe- you felt it. It's it's appealed to your senses. You've tried it on. I, I actually look good on this. Uh, somebody just complimented me on how great I look. Um, that will never, ever go away. That will always be a driver of sales. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, no, no. I do agree. So then I guess my last question for you is what's next for Roger? Wow. Um Continuing to evolve, uh, you know, as as a broker is, you know, years and, you know, my 13 years now as my own agency, um, you know, started off as a sales agency, but as I have to evolve along with the fashion community as well, you know, the demands are are constantly changing. So, you know, for myself and, and my 
um, industry as a, as a fashion broker and, and others within the fashion community, you know, we have to adapt. You know, this, is, this isn't an industry, you know, you take from the 1920s to, you know, the 1990s where nothing really changed. Um, we're in such an incredible explosion of growth of ideas and um, ways about going business and channels of going about business. It's Wow, it's it's. I'll, I'll admit it's difficult to keep on top of it all. But um, so for me, it's it's information, it's it's education, it's it's um, being connected to a lot of thought leaders out there on on where things are going. So um, yeah, if I was to say if, if anywhere that's where I'm going is is just trying to keep on top of, of the mm-hmm. changes and looking at different markets. I would imagine for for different you know things for your clients depending on what their needs are and, and things like that. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, you take the supply chain. You know, which we were, we've been talking a lot about you know if anybody's got the pressure right now it's it is that supply chain model because we are in a literally a global world right now there are no borders anymore where you're ordering something um, we just uh, my wife and I bought something on off of Amazon finding out it came from another country and mm-hmm. I just kind of assumed it was sitting in their warehouse down the road um, we are in a global economy right now um, so things are changing at a, at a very very fast speed and and I think the problem with us as consumers is we almost are expecting it. We're almost demanding it to be seamless. And this is 2017. Surely somebody's figured it Get out. Get with the times, yeah. Exactly. It's, it's um, yeah, and, and I find we as consumers are very um, short-tempered. You know, we're expecting things now. Um, yeah. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a challenge. Yeah, well, I'll give you an example. There was a large retailer at Christmas. <laughs> I bought a pair of pajamas. It was Minion pajamas. And they were really cute. My sister would have loved them. And they said, um, one in a minion. I thought they were amazing. <laughs> and they were a Christmas present. And so I bought it online, and they delivered to me, and they delivered me the top only with holes in it. What? So I called them back and said, you know, I, this is what I received. I didn't get the pants. Oh, okay, we'll refund you the money, but you have to go ahead and purchase it again. So I had to go back onto their website, redo the purchase, purchased it, it came to me, and I got the top only again. We're talking like this is a large Was retailer. there holes on the top again? No, there was no, no holes, okay. but I well, only got the top. One, one thing at a time, Sarah. And this We're is a large, one, one, large retailer who you'd think that would ha- get it right. So then I called in, and they said, oh, yes, it's something wrong with our warehouse. Well, I said, well, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I Come to our warehouse. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he said, we'll look into it. And I said, well, am I going to have it for Christmas? Because there was still some time. And he, well, I'm not sure. And I said, okay. <laughs> um, I'm not sure what to say to that. Um, and, you know, I'm glad that the pants came before Christmas and I was able to give them their Christmas present. But at the end of the day, if a large retailer is struggling with the online You know, it's just taking everybody that much longer to catch up and try to figure this whole e-commerce and online thing out. Yeah, it's and and I'm sure you you look one in a minion. Sorry, I missed that one. Um, Yeah, it's a struggle for them all. I had I had Harry Rosen on a a panel. I was um, talking a while ago about dressing for success, and and he brought up you know that online challenge. It's the consumers demanding it. It's you have Mm -hmm. to have it as a retailer nowadays. It's not a matter of 
we don't do online like that. You just don't hear that anymore. It's mm-hmm. part of your business model. Um, that, but it comes with its challenges. It's, well, and I really didn't like the responses. Yeah. When somebody's on, and I faced exactly what uh, you're going through with, with other online retailers as well. Um, yeah, and it's almost like they're not part of the, the organization. They're actually a call center that's dealing with four or five other retailers. So that person on the other end of the line doesn't have a um, an emotional attachment to their employer, mm-hmm. so to speak, That's being exactly a specific retailer. Yeah. Um, you know, thank you for coming. You know, come back again. Um, but I also it. think they're going to have to get it right. Oh, sure, I mean, sure. for customer experience purposes, people aren't going to just go into their stores. They do want to buy online. And if they don't get it right, people aren't going to come back. It, you know, it, you hit the nail on the head. This one thing about uh, an online experience is, is consumers have that bad experience. They've moved on. Um, where you're actually in a store, odds are somebody's going to be a little bit more polite to you when they're face-to-face with you and they mm-hmm. want to solve that issue face-to-face. We're online. It's, it's basically faceless. Um, not to go over time, but um, I used to uh, do a case study talk about Boo.com. And Boo.com was a, a U.S. Um, and U.K.-based online retailer. I think it was in 1999. Hundreds of million do- dollars. I should say hundreds of millions. I think it was just above $100 million of capital venture funding at the time. Um, and this was a, a high-speed um, web portal for luxury buying and went bankrupt within nine months. Wow. And part of their problem was, um, at the time, the majority of the world wasn't on high-speed internet. If you remember the dial tone on our phones as, our, <laughs> as the internet was kicking in. Um, uh, so the website was based on high-speed internet, but most people weren't in the world weren't on high-speed internet in 1999. Um, and there's nothing worse than somebody dropping 10 grand and thank you very much, customer 7124. Your confirmation number is 83682. Um, no, thank you, Mr. Ginrich. I, would you like a glass of wine or champagne with your order? That's the luxury market. Yeah. Um, but they didn't know their audience. And, you know, it's one of the mantras that I live by in my agency is know thy audience. Yeah. And especially at retail, you've got to know who you are selling to and, and to, to cater to those uh, demands of your of your consumer base. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, we love fashion here at Two Babes, and we love Roger. Thank you so much, Roger, for being on the show and talking to us about global fashion and supply chain. Thank you very much for having me. Loved the discussion. Are you struggling to make the most out of your supply chain and keep your orders moving efficiently? Icecorp is your supply chain specialist, and they specialize in e-commerce, retail, and drop ship distribution. They will provide you with tailor-made solutions that will drive your business and sales forward. Get your free assessment. Visit them at icecorplogistics.com. Check out their learning center as they have some great free resources waiting for you. Looks like the future of fashion is a mix of quality, timeless pieces, and a supply chain that handled the speed of demand. Thanks to Roger for taking us through fast fashion, supply chain, and sustainable fashion. We listen to our audience. Coming up next week, we dive into how to get your desired outcomes using the ideal supplier scorecard with Bill from Cascade. Thank you for joining us today. If you have a question we can feature, a topic you want to hear about, or want to be a sponsor, email us at listener at twobabestalksupplychain.com. Stay connected with us and our guests on Insta, LinkedIn, and Twitter. This episode was produced by Mike Mazurik, and we are your hosts, Sarah and Nick. Remember, everybody, ship happens.